So if you remember last time, we finished up presenting and then evaluating uh, four or four and a half, I guess, views of the admonitions and warning passages in Scripture with the tension being if the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is true and eternal security is, in fact, a biblical doctrine, as we've shown, what do you actually make of these warnings and admonition passages? Why are there conditional statements uh, given towards believers? And uh, I, I went through four, maybe four and a half, if you count down to the covenant, the, the Presbyterian view as a view, views, and I said, well, this is kind of where I, I don't think any of them ultimately at the end of the day are satisfactory in terms of their understanding, and I suggested a different understanding called the means of salvation. So I know that's long, but just read it with me. That God uses the admonitions and warnings of Scripture as a mechanism and means to preserve the elect. Though the loss threatened in such passages is, in fact, eternal damnation, true believers will be effectively called to final salvation by such warnings, and thus never experience the horrible consequences of failing to do so. Warning and admonitions encourage us and inform us of the means by which God has declared that we will reach final salvation by enduring. So the warnings affect how we act. Warnings affect how we act. Um, all, a lot of the other views come to the warnings of Scripture as annoyances to a theology that need to be explained. I have my view. I find these warnings. And then I'm asked, how do I explain them away or something like that? Instead of coming and asking, how do the warnings function? These are letters. There's like real audiences here. How do the warnings function? Well, how does a warning function when you give a warning? What it functions to do is you're seeking to shape somebody's behavior. Um, it is like a poison label on a bottle. It's not merely informing someone that there is poison. Isn't that interesting? It's got a skull and crossbones on there. It's trying to affect somebody. Do not drink this. I gave the example of when I tell Will when he when he did like it's past tense totally, but when he might be you know reaching his hand up on the oven range, and I'll say it's hot. You know, I'm not merely informing him that it's hot. What I'm doing is I'm actually causing a change in his behavior. And you know, you know, I know that because I say it's hot, and he goes, okay. Warnings do things. Warnings accomplish. Warnings accomplish things. And so I'm, I gave an analogy to evangelism, where I gave the the twofold understanding of hyper Calvinism. Who remembers my two understandings of hyper Calvinism? Does anyone remember? Yeah. Yes. That is, properly speaking, what it is. Yeah, that's the one that it's important to know. Were you going to say yeah, something? I think one is the hyper-Calvinism that supports um, double predestination that not only were some predestined to election, there are other predestined to hell. Yeah, so I mean, that would be... I don't, so yeah, so technically that's not going to fit into hyper-Calvinism because you have regular Calvinists who believe in both of those things, plenty of them. Hyper-Calvinism is going to be this idea that because God has elected people, we don't have to do evangelism. Why? 
because what God has elected has to come to pass. I can just sit here on my hands and what God's going to do, what God's going to do, because he's already said he's going to save people. And it's like that person who took, you know, one philosophy class and then stopped. Like, see, it's got to happen. Well, God has ordained means to bring those elect out of darkness, though. And that means is making disciples, evangelism. So God does not ordain the end apart from the means. What I'm suggesting is that God has not ordained the end of endurance apart from any means whatsoever. And I gave you some alternate like science fiction scenarios about the means God could have used. For example, he could have done it where once you were saved, you had no sin nature. Your sin nature was completely wiped away, kind of like uh, you kind of have a resurrection body uh, kind of disposition in your heart, you know, like you're glorified, but maybe not, maybe just that your heart is glorified, but your body isn't or something like that. And so then that would be a way to preserve people to get to the finish line. All of a sudden now they're sinless. He didn't use that means to cause people to endure. He could have taken people out of the world and, and, and done something where there was, you know, oh, I'm at a place where there's no temptation or this or that. And I know I could still find a way to ruin that one. But the idea is he could have used other means to make sure that everyone who repents and believes the gospel to be crude about it makes it to the finish line. The warnings through the Holy Spirit are the means that he has in fact chosen or a, a, a primary means that he has in fact chosen to do so. This view takes very seriously the already, presently, and not yet aspects of salvation. Now, this is really key. A lot of the discussion about perseverance of the saints and warnings is couched in terms of prote protecting something that you already have or that you were given back in the past. Like, I repented and believed the gospel, and now the warnings are so I don't lose what I, what I have or what I've been given. This says that, that, that that's misunderstanding things. The warnings are not primarily to protect against losing something that I have or had. It's to urge me forward to something that I truly do not yet have. Salvation is a process, not simply a punctiliar moment. Um, for it is by grace you have been saved, past tense, Ephesians 2.8. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Mark 13, 13, You will be hated by all, my names, uh, for, by, by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You were saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. Okay? And so they're not obviously mutually exclusive, but there's a great difference in framing these warning passages as do this to, to not lose what you have. To do this. This is how you get to what you don't have. And remember, I paraphrased uh, Paul last time. I'm not going to paraphrase it. Listen to what he says. Not that I have already obtained this, this glorified state, this perfection, or I'm already made perfect. He says, I haven't attained it. Paul is striving for something he genuinely has not yet attained. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what? To what? Someone finish that. To what lies ahead? He's straining forward to what lies ahead. There's genuinely something ahead of him. 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Or in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that all the all in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so that so run that you may what? Obtain it. There's a way to run. So there, there is a way to run, and there is a futuristic, a yet-to-come, a final aspect of salvation that I'm suggesting the warnings. In fact, it was um, I think it was Ben the other day. Who, who, who mentioned the warnings as a kind of guardrails that you might bump into, but you never go off the side of the road in light of the Holy Spirit, that the, these warnings play a role in advancing the salvation process and preserving the believer in the same way that me telling Will it's hot preserves his hand from being burned. Okay, so any questions about that? That's a, just a brief recap, but I think it's important. Any questions about that understanding of how the warnings work. Okay. So I think this is a very attractive suggestion, but there still might be someone who balks at this. You say, I understand warnings when you warn your son not to put his hand up there and how it's causally effective. But if you didn't think it was even possible for him to put his hand up there, you know, maybe it's not quite as plausible. You say, I don't really, uh, you're telling me that there are these warnings, but it's not possible that they're, they fail to be, they fail to be heeded, which is exactly, that is exactly what I'm saying. So I want to briefly just show you a couple of examples in scripture so that you can have a small bank of your own and you don't have to just uh, is, you, can, you don't have to just take my uh, word for it. This is not something I'm just making up here. So the first is very briefly Mark 13, 19 through 22. Turn over there with me. I just want to show you one example. I'm going to go through these quickly. Because I, I think the, the hypothesis that the warnings function in this way is still very persuasive and attractive without these. But I think this will help um, maybe give us a little bit more grounding that we're not just pulling this uh, out of thin air. Okay. I was like, wait a second. I'm, I'm in the wrong gospel. It's like, this is not Mark. This is not Mark 13. Okay. There we are. All right. Okay. So, Mark 13, here we have. Mark's version of the Olivet Discourse, and so he's talking about the abomination of desolation in 14. He's going on and on. 18, pray that it may not happen in winter, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. For in those days there will be such tribulation as there has not been since uh, from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Verse 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then 21. And if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ, false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. What's the implication of that? Is it possible for the elect to be led astray? No. No. Yeah, right. Well, see, that's it, though. That's just it. So 
if, if possible, even the elect would be, okay, but you're saying it's not possible. So why are you sitting here giving us all these warnings then? You see, the warnings are, I'm suggesting the warnings is part of what makes it not possible. So here's an example right now of warnings being issued. Okay, we are supposed to read this as believers a certain way. Well, I mean, you could kind of, depending on your eschatological view, you might have said to the original audience, whatever, either one. I'm not going to make a ruling on that in this moment. But they are supposed to say, look, these things are coming. If someone says there's Christ, don't really believe them. Because there are going to be really persuasive people coming. I'm just telling you this. I am warning you this is going to happen. I'm warning you there's going to be signs and wonders. And so you're not deceived. And the elect can't be deceived anyways. They're not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now, there's certainly wider import for this verse as well. He's not simply admonishing the elect. There's a mixed crowd element to this, totally understood. But nevertheless, this is Scripture written for the church and written for the believer, and that's simply what we have here. It seems that um, uh, um, the Lord has seen fit to give this particular warning to us so that we would not be led astray even though it's not possible for the elect to be led astray. Okay, so there's, there's, there's one example, okay? Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, there's another example. It's a little, this one's a little bit more subtle. First Timothy chapter 2, 14 through 18. Oh, wait, no, wait, it's 2 Timothy. Yeah, it's 2 Timothy, I'm sorry. It's 2 Timothy 2. A couple more pages over. Paul tells Timothy to remind them of these things. We're going to go to these things in just a second, actually, later on. Charge him before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, rightly handling the word of truth. Verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And then he's going to zoom in on two people. And this is the second time he's mentioned Hymenaeus, but he's going to zoom in on two people. He's going to mention Philetus. And and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But then, then here you get this in the kind of the same sentence. Um, and the, Again, he's, 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 he's telling Timothy this is going to happen, and he's telling Timothy that this false teaching is disturbing some people's faith. It's upsetting some people's faith, and they're teaching things that, have swer- uh, that they have swerved from the truth in so doing. But here's what he says in the same sentence in verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal or inscription, depending on how you want to uh, uh, understand that word there. The seal or the inscription, I'm going to go back and talk about this later, but both of these come out of the, it seems are, you're going to see two quotations here. And the quotations both come out of, they're paraphrases of the, 
Greek versions of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, would be the Bible that the, the, uh, Jesus and the apostles use uh, primarily. It comes out of the account of Korah and Korah's rebellion. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But, but having said that, having told Timothy that these people are upsetting people's faith, having swerved from the truth, he nevertheless says, the Lord knows who are his. This is the elect that he talked about a couple verses earlier. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Both at the same time. Both at the same time. Here are people with the truth is being threatened by these people. And some people's faith is even being upset by these things. And at the same time, the Lord knows his own, the elect. They're not going anywhere. And regardless, if you are one such person, you are to depart from iniquity. Or you are to, in the context of Korah's rebellion, come out from that lawlessness. And so this is not so much a warning, but an admonition. It's not the conditional kind of if. This is an admonition. And it, the idea seems to be that there are people who are upsetting the faith of those, but, but even so, he's calling Timothy to be on alert, to teach to these things, and even so, the Lord knows whose are his, and they're not going anywhere, and yet, at the same time, there is the admonition to depart from iniquity. So that person says, yeah, the Lord knows his own, so I can live like this. Not the case. The Lord knows his own, so live like this instead. That's the admonition. That's the admission. Hey, baby, do you want my coffee? Are you sure? Okay. We had a mishap, and Shanti's coffee didn't make it into the van this morning. So, yeah. Do you want it? It's hot. Okay. Okay. So the idea here is here's an admonition towards people who are already secure in light of people actually threatening and upsetting their faith. And the idea is that's not going to happen. And... They need to come out of those things. Okay, let me, let's me let turn to my, the last, my last example of this. It's my favorite example, Acts 27. Turn with me to Acts chapter 27. Acts 27 records the storm at sea and the shipwreck of Paul as Paul sails for Rome. And so, let's go down to verse 13. There's a storm that comes up. Paul is on this ship. He's the one who says that this is going to be a, this is a bad idea. He says that in verse 10. I perceive that the voyage will be injury and much loss, not only to the cargo of the ship, but also our lives, which ends up not happening, and that ends up being critical in what I'm about to say. But that's what he has said. Verse 14 says, there is this wind that comes up, this northeaster, struck down from the land, and the ship was caught and could not face the wind. We gave way to it and were driven along, running under the, oh, my eyes just did like a, running under the lee of a small island called Cotto. We managed with difficulties to secure the ship's boat, and after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, and the fearing that it would run aground on the Sirtis. They lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since they were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. So they're starting to throw stuff off. And on the third day, threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is it. This is the end. Done. 
He says, you should have listened to me, verse 21, and not set sail from Crete. Now here's where it gets very, very interesting. He says, yet now, verse 22, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. How does Paul know that? He's the one who thought that there was going to be loss of life. That's the reason he said, don't head out. Was he a mind reader or something? Can he see the future? No, but God can. Look at this, verse 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So he says, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Now you would think, Okay, well, they're going to listen to Paul. So he's given them, uh, uh, Paul has given them a promise now that everyone is going to be saved. But look at verse 29. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, and here it is, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now let me ask a question. Hadn't God already said that everyone's going to be saved? Hadn't that already been declared? He already said that. Remember, verse 22. Yet I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. This was revealed to Paul by God. And yet, how does that work? What's the mechanic there? The mechanic is Paul saying, when folks are getting down and doing all this stuff, unless these men, they cannot be saved. And they listen to him, and it's effective. Then the soldiers, verse 32, cut away the ropes in the ship's boat and let it go. And so then Paul again, verse 34, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Okay, so the, the narrative continues on here, and he ends up surviving uh, the centurion saves Paul. But what I want you to see in this particular picture is there's a guarantee made by God, a guaranteed particular end. Everyone will be saved. And yet, that is not mutually exclusive at all with giving an, a, a conditional statement by Paul, and it is a warning that actually affects these people's behavior to not do what they were going to do. And that is part of how their being saved and not being killed in this storm happens. Any questions about that principle? Any, any questions about any uh, those examples or kind of what I'm trying to get at when I, when I show you those uh, uh, particular warnings? Does that make sense? Who says it doesn't make sense? No one wants to say that, do they? Okay. If it doesn't make sense, come ask me later. But these are supposed to be instances of admonition and... Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. 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 No, so, so, the, so that's a good question. So on the means of salvation view... The threat of not listening or not obeying is genuinely the fate that it describes. 
If you live this way, you genuinely will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you deny him, he will deny you. The, the, the means of salvation understanding of the warnings just takes those right on the chin and says, yes, that's possible. But the antecedent part of that, the first, the protasis, the first part, the if before the then, isn't the, that believers aren't going to actually ever actualize that part because of the warning itself. So yes, hypothetically, hypothetically, yeah, if Paul said, hey, if you, if you do that, y'all are all going to die. And someone did that. Yeah, they would die. But the whole point is the warning kept that from happening. So the warnings work. The warnings actually do work, which is why they're not empty hypotheticals. They are active hypotheticals. The word is living and active. So it's a very active view of what Scripture does and the role of Scripture itself and the warnings in actual preservation, just like Paul's warning here, is what was the mechanism that preserved these people uh, from death. Does that make sense? So there is a hypothetical there, and the consequence of the hypothetical truly would have been death, but the warning is effective and it preserves. Good question. Any other questions? Yeah. 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 That's correct. Yep. Well, so the, the, the reason I'm showing you this is to justify the principle that there can be warnings with outcomes that are already determined, and it makes sense. More of a general principle. It doesn't, and so someone might say, well, you're telling me there are these warnings in Scripture, and you're saying that they are, they are hypothetical. Why would you warn us of something that's not possible? That's, a, that's the question that I'm responding to. Why would, why, if, if your view of these um, passages, these conditional and warning passages to believers is right, and it really does threaten these things, like eternal damnation, but believers can't, so why is it an empty hypothetical? And I'm saying no, because there's the, there's the idea that warnings actually work, that warnings affect people's behavior. That warnings in the economy of salvation call us forward to something and play a preserving role. These, the, this example is not, um, you're right, it's about physical death. But the point is not so much about what kind of death it is. It's the point about the nature of a warning being given for something when it was already guaranteed the outcome was going to happen. So, so I address that view. I don't think you were here when I did that. Uh, I don't think that that. I, I don't. I think that's a very difficult view to hold up in the air. I think it's true, certainly true. Um, by our by their fruits you will know them. Okay, those who went out from us were not of us. First John two nineteen. But that's not. But we, I would say that we learn that theology from those passages and not from warnings. Warnings are warnings. When we warn people, we're trying to affect their behavior. Warnings in Scripture are trying to do, help the believer call them towards something. So I don't think they're merely these retrospective, static statements about, don't do this. What that means is look inside your soul and see. It's like, no, 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 it's calling us. It's trying to affect our behavior moving forward in the economy of salvation. Okay? Any other questions? All right, well, let's, let's move on. Uh, let's see. Okay, I've got a good time here. Let's go. We're going to move on to some of the so-called problem texts, purported examples of apostasy. I'm going to go through these quickly. Um, 
for a couple of reasons, but I also would really like to uh, wrap this up today. I'm also not going to be teaching Sunday school uh, for the next two weeks. I'll be out of town next Sunday, uh, and then the Sunday after that, we'll have Greg uh, Klein. Greg and Brittany will be back, uh, um, and, and they will he will be uh, giving an update of their um, ministry overseas in the Sunday school hour, and he's going to be preaching. So I'd really like to kind of land the plane here. And if not, we'll get most of the way done before we address definite atonement, close out the series. Okay, so first, we, we've mentioned 1 John 2.19. This is a great one to have tucked away because of the logic of the passage. Okay, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Because if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that all are not really of us. Means that the sign of true belief, how we identify true belief, is endurance. Endurance. Someone who drops out of the race, to continue to use the analogy that we've been using, someone who drops out of the race was never really in the race. That's the idea of 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but actually they were never really in. There's a way to be in, but not really in. Okay? And 1 John 2.19 stands in the background of all of these passages about particular uh, potential apostasy and all the rest. But here's all, what is also really, really critical and you don't hear discussed very much when you look at these, issue, uh, uh, when you look at the, the, these problem passages. Is this acknowledgement of mixed audience in writing. This is particularly important in the book of Hebrews. Who's the audience of the book of Hebrews? Why would that be important, do you think, in the book of Hebrews we're about to look at? Anybody know? Yeah, so the author is writing to a bunch of people who are being tempted to fall back into Judaism. And there's kind of this charitable benefit of the doubt that he is writing to believers but just like anyone, and Hebrews is one example, but the other two New Testament epistles are the same way, and Jesus and the Gospels, his addresses are the same. They are to mixed audiences. Mixed audiences. I was talking with Ben about this earlier um, this week. It, it, it strikes me that every time I step up as a pastor to teach or preach, I'm addressing unbelievers. People who, tall appearances, Never have never repented and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, but that doesn't cause me to not address, to address people when I speak as brothers, sisters, right? Or assuming certain things. Call them, we are the church. It would be inappropriate. I'm making a pastoral appeal. I, I, I'm saying something to particular people, to a particular congregation. Imagine every single time I said, Brothers and sisters, look to Christ. He said, oh, I'm sorry, you can't say brothers and sisters. Actually, some unbelievers here. You need to say the ones of you who are brothers and sisters, those are the ones who need to look to Christ in this particular way, and then they need to look to Christ in another way. These are occasional letters in the New Testament that we build theology out of. It didn't come down like a big systematic theology textbook like Wayne Grudem or Burkhoff or Michael Bird or Bob Inc. or the Institutes, Okay. These are occasional letters, and we build Christian theology out of them. But these letters are addressed to congregations, okay, many of which include people like any other church in the... Think how remarkable it would be if every congregation Paul wrote to, every single person was a Christian. 
He knows he's writing to people who are not Christians. He knows he is writing to people who are self-deceived. We're going to see that in 1 John. John's going to write to people who may, who may be self-deceived. Um, and so in the context of writing to people who are the church, yet pastorally um, understanding that there are people in darkness with whom you are communicating, it gives a different perspective to how we even approach warnings. And it gives a different perspective to how we address someone who appears to all appearances to be externally participating in the church and this and that and all the rest that falls away. There is an assumption, no, we can't read anyone's heart and, and soul. That's why there is the process of church discipline outlined in Matthew 18. Someone is professing to be a Christian, and yet their life tells a different story. And after the, the requisite steps, uh, at least in that particular case, as it's laid out in Matthew 18, that person's removed from the church. So there is the expectation that there will be people in the church that are not actually believers. They will look like believers. They will talk like believers. And then there will be something that happens where everyone goes, hmm, I'm not so sure. And the best example of uh, the best, I don't know if it's the best example, but look at someone like Judas. Again, you know, I've talked about this one a lot. You know, Judas was with all the other disciples. He did all the other things. There wasn't any indication that when he was doing miracles, like he was trying hard and electricity was shooting out of his hands when he tried. And he was like, oh, no, I better not try any. You know, he was, no one even knew when Jesus said, do it, you know, no one even suspected anything. He's the son of perdition. Okay? So I want to, that's a very, that's very key when we're going into, look at, when we look at Demas. Oh, well, Demas, he was in love with the world. So that means he was a believer and then he apostatized. And so eternal security is false. Wow, hold on, wait a second. That really assumes some things about Paul's descriptors. Is he describing what he believes to be reading somebody's soul before God, or is he describing someone's profession of faith, their prior activity within the church as a congregation, holding out the name of Jesus and saying, this person has fallen away, okay? Important. It, does that make sense? The mixed audience part of, the, the, of how we read the New Testament? Jesus' audience, certainly mixed. Every epistle's audience, certainly mixed. That changes what you think about warnings and how you would address them. Okay. okay. I was given a really good analogy the other day. Um, well, no, let me say this. I just think it's important enough if, if I don't get all the way through. I have zero problem, zero problems looking out at our congregation. And here you are, some of you, about half of you. Why is that? Why aren't more people here? Um... And saying, if you turn away from God and live a debaucherous life, you will go to hell. So don't do it. I don't have a problem saying that. No. Do not go wander and plumb the depths of this world in sin and do not go into this, that, or the other. Remain faithful to Christ. And imagine someone saying, Tyler, remember because of your theology, you don't need to exhort us to be faithful to Christ. It's not possible that we're not faithful to Christ. Uh... Just want to let you know. Warnings are part of what accomplishes faithfulness. I heard a great example. No, I didn't hear it. I read it 
this week about a mountain climber, um, two mountain climbers. And um, the person said there was a huge difference in saying, um, I might fall, and if I fall, I'll die. Now, I might fall and die, and if I fall, I'll die. They were like, now listen to these two statements. I thought they made a great point here. And, and you'll probably have to turn this one over in your head. It might not make sense initially. But he says, the person who says, I might die, goes into the climb very fear fearful. <laughs> I might die. The person who says, if I fall, I'll die, goes in prepared. Got his harness checked. He's got the ropes on, right? He's got his his little hex keys and the cracks the right way and the belay system all fixed up. And he goes in confident. He knows the consequences, but he goes in confident. I might die versus if I fall, I will die are two very different things. And so I'm suggesting that the warnings are the if I fall, I will die. It doesn't cause people to go, oh, I might fall. I might lose. No, no, no. It's supposed to encourage and instruct so that doesn't happen. Okay, it's calling you toward the climb, toward the summit. Okay, not warning you to stay on the ground so that you stay safe. That's not it. Okay, I, thought, I think that's worth, I think it's a really very, very good little analogy to think about the warnings. Okay, so having said this, my approach to almost all the Hebrews passages, and Hebrews 6 might be an exception. It might be that something else is going on in that passage. Um, but I'm going to just very briefly. These are the so, these are the five so-called warning passages of Hebrews, and I and and the my view just addresses them all exactly the same. All exactly the same. They're all means of salvation warnings that truly threaten what they say they threaten. It takes it on the chin, and they are and they are warnings in order to accomplish something um, in the life of the believer. So Hebrews two one through four. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, writing to again to a, a very, especially Hebrews, a mixed audience, lest we drift away from it. How could we drift away from it? It's not possible. Why is the he, author of Hebrews wasting his breath? For since the message declared by angels proved that you are liable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so I'm here to say, as the, don't neglect the salvation of Christ. I'm declaring that to you right now, right here. Don't neglect Christ's salvation. I'm declaring to you the exact same thing. The author of Hebrews is declaring to his audience. Now, does it sound so problematic when I say it to you? Right? It doesn't sound problematic that I'm exhorting you. Right? I don't, I, 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 I don't see... Just because I am exhorting you in that particular way, I'm not implying anything to make you scared. I'm trying to encourage you towards final salvation. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be any in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away for the living God. But instead of doing that, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So turn away from sin. Turn away from your sin. Don't deceive yourself. This overlaps so well with 1 John 5-10. through 10. It's going to be a sermon. Don't pretend you're the person who doesn't have sin. 
Don't deceive yourself. Be confident in the Lord. That's what this is. It's encouragement and instruction to move forward, not if you don't do this, you'll lose what you had back here. Okay? Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 12 is too large of a passage for me to read right now. I'd address it the same way, although Hebrews 6 could be saying something a little bit different. Let me just briefly say the two, I think, primary ways you're going to under uh, hear Hebrews 6 understood is either the person described who's tasted the heavenly gift and done all the rest of it is someone who to all appearances is a believer but is not, okay? Or they are definitely a believer and the falling away just isn't reprobation. Or it's, it's, it's not perdition. It's not a falling away to sin. Okay? And it could be because of how especially Hebrews 6 is situated that there's something going on here with these teachers who should be able to bring people out of certain situations tempted to fall back into Judaism and they're not doing so. It's also, um, it's also very possible that it's just one more example of what we've already just read. It's, I mean, if you get out of Hebrews 6... That way, you still have all these other warning passages to deal with. And the most important, I think, is Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. Well, this will give you a, kind of the last taste. I'm not going to do the other one because I handle all of them about the same. But this certainly is one that demands our attention. The author of Hebrews says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Okay, there we are. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses without mercy on the evidence, excuse me, dies without mercy on the evidence, two or three witnesses, how much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him and said, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of, a living, of the living God. Now, I want to point out something to you in verse 29. Who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. In the very same chapter here, chapter 10, what does sanctified look like? What does sanctification look like here? Backing up to verse 10. Okay. He does away with the first order in order to establish a second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time, once for all, a once for all time, single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here's why I'm harping on this. The sanctified person here in the context of Hebrews can't be said to be someone who's an unbeliever. Okay? And this is, the, this is our Presbyterian brothers and sisters interpretation here. This is someone who's part of the new covenant, but who's not a believer. They're sanctified covenantally, but not actually morally. And I'm saying the way sanctified is defined in, the, in this very passage is someone who has been perfected offering, being someone who will be perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. Okay, so we, when we get down to this passage and we read about the person who has been sanctified, okay, it's not going to do to just say, oh, someone who's an unbeliever going to hell and who isn't going to be perfected for all time. So I'm suggesting that this is a warning. And so I don't mind looking at you and say, 
if you have heard and embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you turn away and trample the blood of Jesus, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So run the race with endurance. Christ Jesus is with you. He shed his blood for you. He, purif he has purified you. Don't outrage the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. And, and don't think that there's another gospel. If you reject the spilled blood of Christ, there is no gospel for you. There is no gospel for you. If you go on to sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's been one sacrifice for sins. If you acknowledge that and you're saying, I've acknowledged and I've accepted that, but I'm moving on past that to something else, either to a sinful life or another kind of sacrifice that's going to save, you will perish eternally. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. And that's not to scare people, it is to call and to guard people. That's my understanding, okay? All right, certainly I always want to caveat some of these things with very reasonable, very smart people disagree on these passages. I don't want, um, I don't want the way I present to come across as more dogmatic than I actually am about how you understand these things. But everyone has to do business with these passages, and this is this understanding of the warnings as effective means that will always be heeded because of the Holy Spirit seems to me to uh, best understand the warnings for what they are instead of annoyances that have to be explained, but also in a way that preserves the rest of the Scripture that says that the elect and those who truly have repented and believe will never perish. Come ask me your questions. Come give me your pushback. I'm happy to workshop some of these texts. Unfortunately, I didn't get through all the... There's a couple more examples that I want to work through. We'll finish that up next time before moving on to definite atonement. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you call us to something, an inheritance that's secured for us, but that we do not yet have. And so there is a future hope. There is a, we, we have hope because there is a, a, a future guarantee, I should say. And so, Lord, as we read these warnings, we pray that we wouldn't be like the mountain climber who says, oh no, I, I might die. But who realizes that if I fall, I'll die. And therefore... I'm encouraged to take precaution to guard my own heart. Guard my heart because from it flow the springs of life. And so we pray that these would be encouragements, instructions, and guardrails as we think of these things and that no one would cause to be fearful when we look at these warnings, but they would be aids to spur us on as we run the race with endurance. Be with us during our next hour, even in our fellowship meal afterwards.